This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, folks. Before we get started tonight, we wanted to share this promo from another podcaster doing another Ohio mystery. When the body of a missing township trustee is found floating in a lake near an abandoned amusement park in a small Ohio town, the mysterious circumstances surrounding his disappearance and the strange autopsy findings raise more questions than they answer. In this season of Invisible Ships, we take on one of Northeast Ohio's most intriguing cold cases. We even have an exclusive interview with Brian Macron's widow, Victoria Macron, who believes that her husband was murdered. You do not want to miss her story. We're also going to talk to a former federal investigator who is now actively working this case. And they say they are close to breaking it open. There's a very good chance that the killers are listening in, too. So join us on Invisible Ships Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Now, earlier this year, Marion County, Ohio, made national news as being one of the top hotspots in the country, COVID-19 virus. And that was weird because Marion County is pretty rural. But it's also home to the Marion Correctional Institution, and the virus was running rampant there. It ended up killing something like a dozen inmates. And on May 4, one of the inmates who died was Kenneth A. Roth. Roth was a 70-year-old Stark County man serving a life sentence for killing a woman in Osnaburg Township. But authorities truly believed Roth was a serial killer. And there were at least three other families hoping and praying that given enough time, Roth might one day speak up and confess to the deaths of their loved ones. Unfortunately, Roth took those secrets to his grave. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Roth was born in 1950 and grew up around the area of East Canton, But in April of 1968, as soon as he hit adulthood, he ran away from his parents' farm and ended up in Kansas. One month later, he took his first life. His victim was James Long, a taxi driver in Topeka. 
Roth and two other teenage accomplices robbed him of $27.11. Then Roth shot him to death. Prosecutors sought the death penalty for the 18-year-old Roth, but jurors recommended a life sentence after hearing from character witnesses, including Roth's parents. And so that's what he was given, life with the possibility of parole. In 1985, a Kansas district judge found, and here's a quote, that the welfare of the general public would not be jeopardized if Roth's sentence was reduced. And so after serving just 16 years of his life sentence, he was paroled. Roth headed back to Ohio, resettling in Stark County's Osnaburg Township. He became a handyman there. By 2009, he had a dozen clients, all older single women. Among them was Linda Van Voorhees Smith. Linda was born in 1948 in the city of East Canton and graduated from East Canton High School in 1966. She was a compassionate and caring woman, and those traits steered her to the Altman Nursing School, where she earned her nursing degree, then began a 40-year career at Altman Hospital. In 2009, Linda was 61 years old, a mom to two, and a grandma four times over. She was active in Sunday school class and the ministry program at Canton Baptist Temple and donated much of her time to the 4-H Club and Robertsville Grange. She loved to cook and bake. She often used those skills to donate baked goods to the Ronald McDonald House in Akron. Linda had been married twice, neither worked out, and she lived alone with her dog in a wooded area on Orchard View Drive in Osnaburg. On December 9, 2009, Linda finished her shift at Altman Hospital, said goodbye to co-workers, and headed home. Two days later, the Stark County Sheriff's Office was at her house for a welfare check. A family member had called to say nobody had been able to reach her for more than a day, and that was very much out of character. Deputies went inside her home, and they found Linda. It would later be determined she had been dead for two days. She was found face dead on a bed, arms positioned behind her back, in a scene that haunted investigators. She was still in her nursing clothes, though her scrub pants had been pulled down to her ankles. Her shirt and cardigan had been cut in half. A bra was cut from her body and a bra cup stuffed in her mouth as a gag. Her underwear was knotted and wrapped around her neck. It was used to strangle her. Her body had been cut and mutilated. Among the people investigators interviewed was Kenneth Roth, who had worked around her house from time to time, yard work, moving furniture, those sorts of odd jobs. He was a pleasant enough fellow, said Linda's friends, who also sometimes used Roth's services. Linda even attended a cookout at his home once. The case went cold and several years passed, but that pleasant fellow was still very much on the minds of investigators. That's because they knew of his criminal past and not just that 1968 murder in Topeka, Kansas. He had a felonious assault conviction in 1998 in which he served four years. 
And when investigators went to talk to him one more time in the spring of 2016, they had to do it in prison. He was back in jail, serving a two-year sentence on a federal weapons conviction. The thing that sent deputies to talk to him again was that the state crime lab had found a particular kind of DNA on the underwear that was used to strangle Linda. DNA that couldn't exclude Roth. This wasn't a slam dunk by any means. The kind of DNA that they pulled from the underwear was a type that is not unique to every person. It was a male-specific DNA that could be shared by more than one man. It didn't match the DNA of the other men that the sheriff had questioned in Linda's death, but it did match Roth. Roth also changed his story. He initially told investigators he hadn't seen Linda for a couple of weeks before her death, that he had been hunting from November 30th through December 8th. After he was told Linda was killed December 9 and shown receipts that showed he had made purchases in East Canton that day, he finally said he might have been at her home the day of the murder. He said he went to get paid for electrical work he had done, that Linda told him she'd pay him after she got paid at work. And so he gave her a bill and left. But deputies also had witnesses who said they saw Roth's car at her home that day. And so with that evidence, the prosecutor took Roth to trial in February of 2017. And a jury found him guilty. He was sentenced to life, this time without parole. It was a difficult trial, especially when the testimony reached the point of describing what had been done to Linda not everyone wanted to hear it. Linda's daughter, who was also a nurse, didn't go, saying she knew her mother wouldn't want her to hear the details. And those who did sit through the gruesome account during that four-day trial, they expressed relief that it was over. Linda's brother, William, told a reporter, I was afraid that the nightmare would continue. There was someone else who spoke to reporters after the trial was over. In 1986, Kenneth Roth had married a woman and adopted her son. That son, Matt Roth, said his mother and stepfather separated after a decade. He described Roth as an evil, sadistic, cold-hearted man, someone his family was very much afraid of. He freely shared anything he could with police during the murder investigation and went to the trial to show support for Linda's family. Matt Roth told reporters he really needed to be off the street a long time ago. Roth himself showed no emotion during his trial. And what the jurors in that trial didn't know was that Linda was only the last in a string of unsolved murders. All middle-aged women, most of them found naked or partially so, strangled with their own clothing, in their own homes, never any sign of a forced entry. And Roth had a connection to each and every one of them. The first was in September of 1985. Her name was Kay Goulash, and she lived in Star County's Plain Township. She was 46 years old. She'd held a garage sale at her home on Harmont Drive that day. Her mother, two daughters, and her son-in-law stopped in for lunch. Her mom was the last to leave at 4 p.m. 
Her husband, Robert, came home shortly after and found Kay. She was lying on a bed. She had been stabbed in the back, cut across the right side of her neck, and strangled, a condition that authorities described as mutilated. She had been watching her seven-month-old grandson at the time. He was unharmed in a playpen in the garage. Two witnesses told police they saw a car, a pink 1963 Mercury, at Galasha's home around the time she was killed. Now, that was unique. There was only one car like it registered in all of Stark County, and it belonged to the brother of Kenneth Roth, who told police his brother had the use of that car. Investigators learned that Kay's house was on the route that Roth drove from his parents' farm in Osnaburg Township to a flea market in Hartville, where he sold leather goods. But he denied ever stopping at her home, and detectives were short on evidence. Five years later, police found themselves questioning Roth again. It was Easter Sunday, 1991, about 10 p.m., and Stark deputies had been called to an apartment in Plain Township at Fulton Drive and Wirtz Avenue. The 51-year-old woman living in apartment four was Patricia Murphy. Patricia, a divorcee, had moved into the apartment that was just a half mile from the Pro Football Hall of Fame a couple of months earlier. She worked at Solid Gold Tanning Salon, she always had a tan herself, and at a downtown Canton bar called Cronies. Now, she was inside the brick apartment, on a bed, strangled and stabbed to death. The coroner determined she had probably been dead four days before she had been found. Stark Captain James Shannon lived just a few blocks away, and he was called to the crime scene. A reporter from the Canton Repository interviewed him about arriving at the apartment that night. Captain Shannon said he asked about for who had made the call to dispatch. I called, said a man with a scruffy beard leaning against a vehicle. Shannon turned to face the voice and instantly recognized Kenneth Roth. He had crossed paths with him during that K. Goulash investigation. What are you doing here? Captain Shannon asked. Roth, it turns out, was the maintenance man for the apartment complex. Just shortly before the sheriff was called, two people showed up to knock on Patricia Murphy's door, distraught because they hadn't been able to reach her for days. Patricia had even missed phone calls from her daughter in California, who had celebrated a birthday a couple of days earlier. Something was wrong. Another tenant called the landlady for them, and the landlady sent over the maintenance man with a key. Kenneth Roth unlocked apartment four, then went back out yelling, It's foul play! It's foul play! Again, investigators questioned Roth but didn't have any evidence to connect him to the crime. He had a good reputation with the other tenants. One tenant said Roth once gave her a puppy, took her for a ride on his Honda Goldwing, and told her his biker name was Kona, which he said meant Knife of the North. He also copped to having killed that cab driver back in 1968, but that she never had any reason to be afraid of him. That tenant and others 
also said when Roth introduced Patricia to them, he referred to her as his former girlfriend. It was never clear on whether the pair had actually been an item. And so, just as in the goulash case, the murder of Patricia Murphy went unsolved. And then, in August of 1993, another murder. Julia Harbert was shot in the head while lying on a couch in her home in Stark County's Pike Township. She was 56. She had retired from rolled gold, and she and her husband ran a couple of bars, including the short stop inn on Navarre Road. She was found by her husband, Philip. They lived on Downing Street. She had an ice pack on her head. The cubes hadn't even had time to melt. Like Kay and Patricia, she had been killed in a home with no signs of forced entry. But there were differences. She had been shot, not stabbed and strangled, and she was fully clothed. And yet, investigators found themselves with Kenneth Roth on their list of people to question, and here's why. He recently had installed an alarm system in the Harbert's home. Investigators found no physical evidence that Roth killed Julia Harbert, and suspicion just isn't enough. After Roth was imprisoned in the Linda Van Voorhees Smith murder in 2017, the appeals process began. Roth refused to speak to investigators again while that process moved forward. The families of Kay, Patricia, and Julie always hoped that once the appeals were done and he had nothing left to hang on to, Roth might finally tell investigators his role, if any, in the murders of their loved ones. But that possibility ended with Roth's death in May. After Roth died of COVID-19, Star County Sheriff George Meyer told the Canton Repository, I'm left with the fact that some of these things we're never going to know. Although I had very strong suspicions and a lot of evidence to point in that direction, those are just going to be some unsolved cases, unfortunately. I just find it interesting that he is at his court hearing. He just, you know, he shows a lack of emotion. Uh, you know, he's uh, installing security. It's exactly what BTK did. He showed no emotion when he was listing off his, you know, the people he killed and how he killed them in the courtroom. And, I mean, did they say anything about those women being raped? Because not even BTK raped anybody either. I don't think he did. I did not find any story that said that any of them had been raped. And, you know, it's he clearly had the ability to turn his personality on and off because obviously, you know, some people who knew him well saw him as evil and sadistic. Others who knew him casually look like this is a guy who throws backyard barbecues. This is a guy who gave me a puppy and took me for a ride on a motorcycle. You know, it's... But for him to, like, show no emotion Again. while he's facing those charges, yeah, it just seemed like he was able to shut it off and on. Dennis Rader was a Cub Scout leader, and, you know, just he was a, a deacon in his church and stuff. It's, it's amazing how much these killers can be alike sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-size Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, 
and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.